This is episode 198 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're finishing the 2011 Winter Youth Celebration. This is session seven with Pete Kelly. My name is Hugh Halter. Just uh, grew a little hair, gained a few pounds, but uh, good to see you again. I'm Pete Kelly, and uh, Hugh had to leave. He had to go back to Denver, um, be back with his family, and so uh, they invited me to come and share for a few minutes for our last session. And I'm a church planter down in Corvallis, home of the Beavers, so that's what I thought. (laughs) So, so good to see you guys. I recognize a lot of you from Camp Tadmore. How many Tadmore campers I got in the house? Quite a few, yeah. So good to see you guys again. And um, I, uh, I'm just stoked to be here. I grew up uh, coming to Winter Youth, started coming uh, when I was a high schooler in the 90s. And uh, my youth leader, Denny, is still here bringing kids, so very cool. Give it up for Denny. How about this guy? <laughs> so <clears throat> so um, real quick, kind of let me tell you a little bit about uh, who I am and what I'm up to. And... Um, and then we're uh, going to move into a passage of Scripture to kind of send us off, commission us into all the things that Hugh and others have been leading us in this week. And so um, several years ago, I took a position as the college pastor at a uh, church just south of Salem, Oregon. It was a big church, and um, they were looking to be more effective in reaching the next generation. And so they had lots of people, but they wanted... Uh, to try to attract more kind of uh, high school, college, young adults uh, to the church. And so they hired me to uh, do a Sunday night church service that was going to be appealing and attractive uh, to younger people. And so they basically said, do church, but make it cool. Okay, so that was my job description. Put on a Sunday night service, and we had really cool bands and art and video and drama and music and all that kind of thing. And it was uh, it was just like this Sunday night event that we were hoping to pull college students from from all over the place to come out to our service, and so they could obviously hear the gospel and meet Christ and become part of His family. And um, within a few weeks of doing that gig, um, something within me started to shift significantly. And I started having what I call now sort of my gospel awakening. I sort of came to uh, a new and I think more authentic understanding of, of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and the invitation that we have from him to come and be part of his movement in the world. And um, within a few weeks of trying to do cool church, uh, everything began to change my mind, and I got kind of sick of the idea of let's put on an event and hope that a whole bunch of people will come to us so that they can encounter Christ. The thing that shifted in me was that I started to look to Jesus and look to his life and the way that he entered into our world, and as Hugh talked about, this idea of incarnation, that Jesus didn't just set up shop somewhere and ask us to fix ourselves and come be like him and come join him, but Jesus actually moved into our world. 
Jesus actually showed up. He left the glory and comfort of his home in heaven, and he showed up into our world, became like one of us, lived among us in a way where we could not just hear, but we could also see something of what God's like. Jesus becomes human. God becomes human in Jesus, and we get to see God in him. And then he sends us, as you talked about, he sends us on a mission to go into the world the same way he came into our world. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so all that to say, when those sorts of, sorts of things started to click in my heart and in the kind of group of people that I was leading with at this church, we started to catch a new vision for what would it look like for us to be a community that was on mission incarnationally like Jesus. And so we decided to devote ourselves for a season of prayer, seeking God, asking him to form the life of Christ in us by his spirit, and giving us a vision for taking the gospel to the people that we felt he had called us to, rather than asking those people to come to us. And so with the grace and the blessing of our church at the time, they actually sent us out. And the pastor and leadership there affirmed God's kind of call on my life and those that were with me to, and said, go. And the place that God had put on our heart was Corvallis. And so it was my wife and I and about 40 of our friends. We were all young. Everybody was under 30, mostly college students and a few young couples and, uh, and others. And we left uh, the place where we were, and we went to Corvallis. And the whole vision was simply to learn how to live the life of Christ among the people of Corvallis so that they could get to see and hear the good news of Jesus just by observing us, getting to know us, entering into relationship with us. And after several months of kind of learning how to live that way, we began to gather, we began to pray, we began to share meals, uh, and eventually... Uh, we started a church, and that church is called Doxology. And um, when it came time to decide where were we going to hold our Sunday gatherings, because we didn't own a building, it, it was a really fun kind of season of prayer and waiting on God and saying, where would you lead us to go and show up for worship and to create an inclusive community where people can come and experience Christ? And uh, the place that he led us was the last place in town that anybody would expect a church to meet. It was this sketchy dance club underground. It was called Platinum. And it was just kind of this nasty college dance club that uh, it was right downtown Corvallis and had just kind of a reputation for being a place that you probably uh, shouldn't go if you're a Christian. So lots of drinking, obviously, and other, other stuff that was just done really poorly in a really dark kind of way, and we thought that would be perfect. That's exactly where we want to go. So I called the owner of the club, and I said, hey, I'm a pastor, and we're wondering if we could have our church service in your club on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and uh, he was kind of surprised to get that call. At first, he wasn't real interested, and I said, well, you guys aren't even open on Sunday mornings. You could make a little bit extra money by renting the place out, and uh, we'll be good tenants. And so finally, he agreed. He let us have our church service in the dance club on Sunday mornings, and we would come down early in the morning on Sundays 
to clean up and set up, and the place smelled terrible, especially if the beavers happened to win the night before. It was just a nasty-smelling place. It doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, there would be a victory in Corvallis. And, uh, and we, would, we would go in and transform this, this dark and dirty place into a sanctuary uh, for God's people to encounter him. And uh, we would have to unscrew the stripper pole so that we would have a place to put the communion table. And we set up the VIP lounge as our church nursery. So we put veggie tails on the plasmas and wiped down the black leather couches so our kids could party in style. And we would gather there on a regular basis every Sunday to worship. And the beautiful thing was from, from the very first weeks that we were there, we had people showing up at our gatherings. People who were saying like, I've been wanting to start going to church for years, but I never thought I was good enough. I always thought I would have to kind of clean up my act or fix myself or turn into a good person so then I could walk into a church. They said, I, I never felt like I was good enough to go to church. But anybody can go to platinum, they would say. Anybody can show up here. There's no moral code or expectation for who can come to a dance club. And so from day one, they had all kinds of people, homeless people and and, uh, and people that were maybe thinking the bar was still open for business and, you know, hoping to get a drink. And they would stumble in. And it was just a really fun season of seeing lots of people um, kind of coming into this weird environment to worship and, and meet Christ. And um, the, the one other story I'll tell from that season was the owner of the bar, Eric, and I became pretty good friends over the course of those couple of years. And... Um, he was a guy who, uh, when we first started, kind of showed up on Sunday mornings to unlock the building and let us in and, and kind of oversee things. And he would, he would stand in the back for the first several weeks. And then eventually, as time passed, he would kind of move further and further into the community. He started sitting down and, and, and moving closer and closer. He started bringing his, his girlfriend that he lived with and their kid and they would show up, and their kid would go in and spend time in our children's ministry. And when we did potlucks and that sort of thing, Eric and his girlfriend would bring things. And they began to, uh, they began to, to live in community with us. They didn't know Christ yet, but they, they started to become part of our church. And I remember at one point, several months into this thing, Eric's parents, who are an elderly couple that live in Silverton, they came down for our church service. And uh, they had never been to Platinum before, but they were Christians, it turns out. And uh, they came down and sat and participated in our gathering. And after the gathering, Eric's parents came up to me with tears in their eyes, and they said, we've been praying for years that God would bring Eric back to church. But instead, they said, God brought the church to Eric. And for us, that was a huge moment of affirmation and celebration, that this kind of crazy idea of not asking people to come to us, to our buildings, to our events, to our programs, to our services so that they can encounter Christ, but what if we actually went to them? What if we, as the people of Jesus, showed up in the lives of our friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates uh, in a way where they could get to encounter Christ in us. And so that's a story with Eric that's played out lots more times in lots of different ways, lots of different people's lives. And it's really just been uh, 
a blast. So we're about five years into our church plant now and uh, enjoying enjoying it more than ever, more excited about, about the gospel, about the invitation of Jesus to, uh, to be made like him and to represent him to the world. So um, I want to invite you to go to the book of Matthew chapter 28. I don't know if you have a Bible. And my timer isn't going, so if somebody could, uh, can we set that? I don't know. Should I switch my mic? Oh, wait, okay. You like that? Yeah? Okay. We're going to do this? Okay. Look at you. You know all kinds of stuff. All right. I've been... Okay, how about that? Is that better? Should I start over? My name is Hugh Halter. <laughs> um, seriously, do we have the timer? I don't know how long I have. So, 20 minutes? Okay. Matthew 28. And uh, this is a well-known passage to many of us probably. These are in Matthew's uh, gospel, the final words we have from Jesus. Uh, as he prepares to ascend, to uh, depart from earth and go back to be with the Father in heaven. And uh, we'll read just the last several verses of Matthew chapter 28. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so what we have in here, significant words from Christ, the final words he would get to speak to his people. And uh, we, we would do well to pay close attention. What Jesus does here, this is, a, this is a passage of scripture commonly known as the Great Commission. Very good. So this is where he commissions, he gives his community, co, a mission, he commissions this group of his first Christ followers, the first disciples. Jesus sends them on a mission. So all week long, you guys have been talking about living as missionaries, living missional lives, being missional people. This gives us a picture um, of a specific set of commands that we would use to begin to shape and fill out what does that look like to live as missionaries in the world God's placed us in. And so there's a lot of stuff we could say, but what I want to point out, just one quick observation, is who is Jesus giving this commission to? Somebody, somebody help me out. In this passage, who is Jesus giving the commission to? His disciples. Good. So we know 
that this is Jesus' commission, his mission that he's giving to this first group of 11 disciples. But do we think it was just for those 11 disciples? No. It's clear to us that the way the writer of Luke includes this passage, this teaching in his gospel, that this is Jesus' commission to all disciples at all times, of all places, of all ages. Jesus says, I want you as my disciples, my people, my followers, to go into the world and make more disciples. So one of the things that Jesus is doing in this passage is actually giving a definition of what it is to be a disciple. A disciple, according to Jesus, is someone who makes more disciples. So he's speaking to disciples, people that he has discipled, and now he's telling them, I want you to go and make more disciples. And if you ride that out, then the disciples that those disciples are making are going to be disciples who make more disciples also, right? So Jesus is giving his disciples a mission to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's, according to Jesus, what it is to be a disciple. If you're not making disciples, then you're not living in obedience to Christ. This commission is for you. It's for me. It's for all of us. And I don't know about you, sometimes when I listen to a guy like Hugh or others that are really kind of out front and leading, they're so good at making disciples, so good at sharing the gospel, so good at reaching the lost and all that kind of stuff. I, I look at a guy like that and think, man, he's kind of a you know, super Christian, super disciple maker, super evangelist, and uh, this stuff definitely applies to him. But I kind of look at myself, a normal guy, and think, ah, it's obviously not talking about me. And maybe you would look at it too and say, yeah, it's obviously not talking about me. It's talking about pastors or youth leaders or missionaries. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to disciples. And so if you are someone who considers yourself a disciple of Jesus, then this mission is for you, to go and to make disciples. And we could spend more time. I think Hugh's done a good job of helping you understand what it is to be a disciple, to be an apprentice, to become a little Christ, to be somebody, according to this passage, who obeys the teaching of Jesus. It's not just agrees with it, but actually obeys it. And somebody who is, it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so it implies there's relationship with the Trinity. And so... So there's much to being a disciple in terms of being related to God, friendship, communion with God. And out of the overflow of that relationship, we begin to partner with God in forming the life of Christ in those around us. And so a lot of us have an idea of discipleship that looks like the spiritual formation of those who already believe. So maybe you've been discipled. Maybe somebody asked you, would you like to go through a discipleship course or can I disciple you? And I'm sure that was a valuable experience. I don't want to take anything away from it at all. It's legit. We need that formation. But when Jesus talked about 
discipleship, he wasn't talking about the spiritual formation of those who already believe. Our picture is that if, as you kind of trace the story of somebody's life, there's a point of conversion. Hugh talked about that yesterday afternoon, a point where they cross from death to life, where they are saved, forgiven, where their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's a point of conversion in someone's life. And everything that we would do with that person up until that point, we call evangelism. And then everything we do with that person after that point, we call discipleship, right? So we evangelize them until they convert. And then after they convert, we disciple them. And there's maybe something to that, but that's not actually the picture Jesus gives us. What Jesus is describing here is entering in to the lives of the people around us, the people who don't yet know him as Lord, Savior, and King, and living with them so that they can see God in us, they can see Christ in us, and showing them what it would look like if they were to follow Jesus too. And trusting that the power of the Holy Spirit is upon us because Jesus says it is, that he's given us his authority, that his spirit is breathed into us, and that as our friends and classmates and neighbors and coworkers are growing to know and trust and love us, they're actually growing to know and love and trust Christ in us. And so... My understanding of discipleship has changed drastically in the last few years. I don't just see it as a course that you bring a new believer through after they convert. Discipleship begins at the moment of relationship. When God brings somebody into your life, a new friend, a new acquaintance, a new classmate, that is Jesus calling you to partner with him in making a disciple of that person from the moment you meet them. Now what's crazy is they may not know that they're being discipled. They probably don't. But what they know is that you are somebody who they feel loved by. They feel like they can trust. You're living in such a way that looks different than the world around them, and so they're intrigued. And they start to gather some things. They start to pick up some things in the way that you talk, in the way that you live, in the way that you treat others. They start to notice, and they start to move towards you, and they start to learn from you what the life of Christ looks like lived out in the life of a high schooler. And at some point, God willing, by the power of the Spirit, that person would come to faith. They would cross from death to life. But that's not when discipleship begins. That's when we just get to take it to the next level. And so uh, if that's a fuzzy idea, let me just share it with you this way. My, my wife and I moved into a cul-de-sac five years ago when we uh, started the church in Corvallis. And my prayer originally for my neighbors in my cul-de-sac was, God, I pray that um, over the course of the next several years, every single one of them would come to know Jesus. And I still do pray that. But several months into that endeavor, I started to realize that that's probably not the complete prayer that I should be praying. Because Jesus doesn't just ask me to save everybody. In fact, he doesn't ask me to save anybody. What he asks me to do 
is to love him and love my neighbors as I love myself and to make disciples. And so my prayer became, God, would you help me to love my neighbors as much as I love myself? Because that's something I can actually control. That's something I can actually have some say in. I don't get to determine whether or not they become Christians. But I can actually determine, what will I love them with the love of God? And so over the last five years, Jen and I have been learning how to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Learning how to listen to them, how to care for them, how to speak to them, how to serve them and bless them in tangible and practical kinds of ways. And it's been a really beautiful thing. It's taken several years. It's not quick. It's taken several years for many of them to learn that they can trust us, to learn that we're safe people, to learn that we actually really do care about them in kind of a, in kind of a unique and, and strange way that we really do love them. And uh, several months ago, we were getting home from a weekend trip, and our neighbor Amy across the street was out in the driveway just waiting for us. And stuff had been stressful in her life with marriage and family and, and her job and money, and, and she was just waiting in the driveway. And we pulled up, and she said, I've been just sitting here waiting for you guys because you are the best listeners I know. I just needed someone to talk to. And so we put down everything, spent some time just listening, and then get to pray with her. And then even just last week, she showed up at our house again, knocked on the door the day after Christmas, and said, can I talk with you guys? And she came in. Stuff's going poorly. And she just said, I, I need you to listen. And, uh, and, and we did. We sat there with her for a long time, and I got to pray with her at the end of the day. And it was a really, really cool uh, time together. So what Amy doesn't know is that Jen and I have been discipling her for the last five years. We've been trying our best by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God to live in that neighborhood in a way where she could get to see God in us. And so as she comes to the conclusions that Pete and Jen are people who really care about me, Pete and Jen are people who listen to me, who are interested in me, Pete and Jen are people who love me. Ultimately, we're trying to show her that all of that is only true because it's true of God. That ultimately she has a God who really cares about her, a God who's really interested in her, who loves her, who's a great listener and wants her. And so we're starting to get to explain some of that to her now on uh, several years into it. I had another friend who was a nuclear engineer at Oregon State. He's a pretty sharp guy, right? And um, we, we, end, we go to the same pub on a regular basis, and so we became friends and started spending time together at this pub. And um, he's 43 and been an atheist his entire life. And um, I'm a pastor. Um, you know, he's got a Ph.D. from the University of Michigan. I've got a 2.7 high school diploma, okay? <laughs> and Jesus is calling me to disciple him, Right? So we start having conversations, and by the way, when I start trying to disciple somebody that it doesn't make sense for me to disciple, what does that do for me? It turns me into an incredibly prayerful person. I start studying, I start praying, I start really listening to God and, and asking him to give me wisdom and power and truth. It's a really cool thing. I think Jesus was on to something. 
when he asks us to do something we can't do without him, when we start to do it, that's when we begin to experience his power and presence in our lives. And so Todd and I, this nuclear engineer, we started hanging out on a regular basis. And at one point, we're sitting in a coffee shop on campus at Oregon State. And he said, as an atheist, I've always believed that science can explain everything in the world except for love. He said, I don't know what it is, but I've always known that there's this thing called love at the center of the universe that holds everything together. And science can't explain it. And I looked at Todd and I said, Todd, would you be willing to consider that love isn't a thing, but it's actually a person? If God is love, then he's the one at the center of the universe that holds everything together, that can't be explained by science, but explains everything by his own existence. Would you be willing to consider that? And he said, that makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, from that point on, Todd and I, as I discipled him, he didn't know what that meant yet, or even that that was, knew what that was happening. I said, what, what would you think about coming and joining a community? We, our church is organized in tribes, 10 or 20 missional pe people that are living in community together. And I said, what would you think about coming and checking out one of our tribes? And he said, sure, I'd be willing to do that. And I said, well, what would you think about hosting it at your house? And he said, sure. And so Todd and his girlfriend began hosting our tribe while he was still an atheist and inviting his friends to come and to hear the gospel and to experience Jesus and his people. And on a regular basis, as we'd be talking and sharing around the table or around the living room, Todd would say something and, and I would respond, you know, as affirming as, as possible, but also having to say, you know, that's, that's actually not how the Bible teaches. That's not really what Jesus said. And he said, oh, okay, well, that's all right. <laughs> and we were able to have really open and honest dialogue in that community. And I was able on a regular basis to say, Todd, I can't wait for the day that you come to know Christ. I don't know when that's going to happen or even if I'll know when it does, but I can't wait for the day that you come to know Jesus. And he's like, well, I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's, uh, that sounds good. Highlight of my year, 2011, baptizing Todd on Easter Sunday. Professed Christ as Lord, 45-year-old uh, atheist his entire life at this point. Um, nuclear engineer says, Jesus is Lord. And um, I still get to disciple him now on the other side. So all that to say, just some examples in my life of coming alongside people as an ordinary guy. I am a pastor, but I'm a guy who first and foremost is a disciple, just like you are. And we have an invitation to partner with the Trinity, to come alongside the lives of those God's placed in our life, and to live among them like Jesus lived among us to show them his love, to speak truth in love, and to bear witness to the risen king. And so in a few minutes, Jer is going to come and kind of lead in a time of commissioning, a time of uh, saying, I'm serious about this. I feel like Jesus, the call of Jesus, is worth reorienting my life around. 
I'm ready to take the first steps into living a missional life. I'm ready to obey the commission. I'm ready to begin walking in faith and obedience. Now, some of us are saying, I'm ready to start witnessing, because we know that's what Christians are supposed to do. Did you know in the Bible, witness isn't something we do? It's something we are. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses. Witnessing isn't something we do. A witness is something we are. The truth is, you just might not be a very good one. But if you claim to be a follower of Christ, if you claim the name of Jesus, then you are his witness. And people are looking to you and coming to conclusions about what Jesus is like based on your life. It's an incredible responsibility. And Jesus says, you have my power to go and to live this life. You can do it. You can do it. You go back to school in a few days. As you go back home, go back to your sports team, to your classroom, to your neighborhood, to your group of friends. Those are the people that God has called you to give your life to in this season. And very quickly then, you begin to think about the big picture and what would it look like for me to let the Great Commission begin to shape my big decisions too. So what would it look like for me to decide where to go to college based on the Great Commission, based on who are the people I think God is calling me to go and love and make disciples of? And so in our church in Corvallis, we have people that are actually Christians that are moving into fraternities and sororities as missionaries with the blessing and the protection and the accountability to a community. We're sending them out and having them go and live on mission in dorms and frats in places where people would never get to see the gospel otherwise. And so I'm going to invite the band up and I'm going to invite you into a, a moment of prayer. And um, we're going to actually practice prayerful imagination. And you may have seen this in your uh, primer guide this week. But would you go ahead and bow your, bow your heads, close your eyes with me. <clears throat> and I'm going to ask you to move your imagination. M use your imagination in a prayerful way. I want you to imagine that Jesus comes into the room that we're sitting in right now. And he walks up to you. And he taps you on the shoulder. And he says, come with me. There's someone that I've placed in your life who I want you to show how much I love them. And so you get up and you go with Jesus. And he takes you and shows you somebody you already know who needs to know his love. Where are you? Who did Jesus just lead you to? 
Where is that place? Who is that person? I want you to assume that as we are people possessed by the Holy Spirit, that you've just heard from God, that he's spoken to you, that he's leading your heart, and that the person or place, if someone or somewhere came to mind clearly, that that's someone that he wants you to love in his name to give your life to, to serve, to bless, to enter into their life, not just in a short-term drive-by kind of way, but to begin to make a disciple. In a few minutes, we're going to take some time to share some of those things that we've heard from God, both in this moment and throughout the course of the week, and take some time to encourage each other, to pray for each other, and to send each other out. So stay in that moment of prayer. The band will lead us in a few more songs, and then we'll have a time of sending and commissioning one another.